You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. Hello, I'm Monsignor William Smith. For some years I've been the Professor of Moral Theology at St. Joseph Seminary, Dunwoody as it's called, which is the seminary for the Archdiocese of New York. What I'd like to do and convey is to focus on what we're going to call the Moral Magisterium of John Paul II. The Moral Magisterium of John Paul II. The present Holy Father, Pope John Paul II, became Pope in 1978. And in the years that he has been Pope, a rather considerable doctrinal and moral patrimony has built up. It's not that I would neglect uh, any parts of it, but we're just going to focus on the moral teaching, essentially, the, the moral component, and therefore the title, The Moral Magisterium of John Paul II. The Holy Father, over this period of years, obviously has done a lot of teaching, also through personal witness. But it's in the area of moral theology that I believe he has made a rather significant contribution. Two things are pretty familiar. One of them, in specifics, of course, would be the publication in 1992 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. But also the following year, in 1993, the Holy Father published an encyclical called Veritatis Splendor. That Latin title means in English, The Splendor of Truth. And that's a most unusual document, both for its form and its content, and I suppose its purpose. What the Holy Father does there is to outline, sometimes in great detail, the basic underpinnings, the presuppositions, the basics, if you will, of all of our Christian moral teaching. And that is what we call fundamental moral theology. Now, there are many other things. The Holy Father has three published encyclicals, if you will, on social matters, on social principles, the received teaching of the Church, Laborum Exercens in 1981, uh, Solicitudo Rei Socialis in 1987, and Centesimo Zeis Anos in 1991, which was a, a summary of the hundred years of Catholic social teaching. He has had an apostolic exhortation on Familiaris Consortio, which is on uh, marriage and family life, the plan, God's plan for marriage and family life in the modern world. Another in 1984 on Reconciliatio at Penitentiae, it's called on Penance and Reconciliation. The heart of that, numbers 16 and 17, are a very important component to contemporary moral teaching. He said an exhortation on the Christian faithful and the lay apostolate in Christi Fidelis Laici, Pastoris Dabo Vobis on the formation in the life of priests, and in 1995, Vita Consecrata on the life of religious. So if we put some of those as our background, we'll see that it's quite extensive. The same pope was the author, the final promulgator, of course, of the Church's renewed canon law in 1983. But it's precisely that moral teaching, the Catholic moral teaching, that we want to focus on and examine in some detail because it's important. So one of the first things we want to accomplish is to explain this term that we commonly use in Catholic circles, this term moral theology. I think just for this purpose, if I, if I just kind of keep those two words behind me so that we can do the best kind of example we can on explaining them, moral and theology. If we pay attention to the, both the Catechism of the Catholic Church, but especially to this encyclical Veritatis Splendor, the Splendor of Truth, as it's called. Because I believe not only the content of this teaching from the Pope, but even the method, the method or the way he goes about doing it is very, very instructive and rather important. Why do I say that? I say that not to derail discussion by getting into some esoteric circle about methodology, and it's possible academically to kind of get lost in methodology, but I say it basically to see if we can't 
avoid a common misunderstanding, in fact, a misunderstanding which Veritatis Splenda really repudiates, because it is my impression that many people, including many Catholic people, they view the moral life as something that's kind of external to them. Some might call it legalistic, as if it were a set of um, external rules that are somehow mostly do's and don'ts, probably mostly don'ts, that have been imposed maybe arbitrarily on us, but from outside, and they basically inhibit our freedom. I think you'll find that this is often the way people approach moral subjects. They'll talk about the church's ban on direct abortion, or the church's ban on uh, euthanasia, or the church's ban on homosexual acts, or something. It's this emphasis on bans, or rules, or taboos. Now basically, that is the way many people look at morality. Namely, that it is a, a prohibition, or a ban, or a restriction on something. But the Pope, in Veritatis Splendor, takes some pains to repudiate that kind of external legalistic approach of whether it's a matter of bans that are being lifted or bans that are being lowered. What he does is he begins with a citation of Holy Scripture. He begins with the 19th chapter of St. Matthew, the 16th verse. And the question is, teacher, what good must I do to have eternal life? Notice, what good must I do to have eternal life? For that young man, the question then is not, first of all, bans to be avoided or bans to be finessed. The question basically has to do with the absolute good, which is God. And that's the good that attracts us and the good that calls us. And the Pope continues that this is an important question for everyone, not just rich young men, or poor young men, or old men, or old women, because basically this is a question about what is the truth about the good? What is the truth about the good? Therefore, the title Veritatis Splendor, Veritatis, is about the truth. And that's the important question. What is the truth about the good? This is no small question for everybody. We shape ourselves through our freely chosen acts. We determine who we are by our freely chosen acts. If it's true, as the nutritionists say, you are what you eat, in moral theology, we would say, you are what you choose. You become. You make yourself. You determine yourself by your freely chosen options in life. And that's what's important. Of course, we are free to choose what we ought to do, but we are not free to make what we choose good simply because we choose to do it. Therefore, it becomes very important to figure out, to focus on the truth about the good. Throughout, I think, everything I will try to present in the moral magisterium of John Paul II, there'll be repeated emphasis on sacred scripture, on sacred tradition, and on the magisterium of the church. Why? Because those are the sacred sources. I do not deny that there are other sources, other wisdoms, other authorities, but these are sacred sources that are most important to the fundamentals and the foundation of our Christian moral teaching. Let's go back to the subject. The subject is what we call moral theology, moral theology. Moral and morals has to do with human activity. Many other sciences examine human activity. Possibly the thing we first associate moral theology with is ethics. In a Christian perspective, perhaps even Christian ethics. But if someone were either in high school or in college and they took a course in ethics, we tend to call it rational ethics. Rational ethics. That really means that you're your answer is as good as your reason, and the emphasis is on reason. The emphasis is not on revelation. Ethics examines what? Well, moral is what we would call the material object. That's the subject matter that we are looking at. So we speak of medical ethics, we speak of business ethics, all different forms of human behavior. And certainly there is no shortage. There is certainly no shortage of theories 
and ethical theories. Some of them are quite ancient. They go back to the ancient Greeks. One of the most ancient theories would be someone like Plato. And Plato had a concern for morals, but Plato was very heavily an intellectual. His was such an intellectualist theory that you might even call it moral intellectualism. For Plato, knowledge is the only virtue and ignorance is the only sin. Knowledge is the only virtue, ignorance the only sin. He'd carry it so far that he could probably say, if you know what's right, you'll do what's right. Because knowledge is the only virtue, ignorance is the only sin. I think people with some experience know from their life experience, that's a little bit too high-minded, it's a little bit too abstract. I think, in terms of realism, if you were to read St. Paul's epistle to the Romans and just look at that seventh chapter, Romans 7, 15, St. Paul, I think the realist, describes all of us when he says at times, we don't even understand ourselves. How is it? Sometimes, the good that I would, I do not, and that which I would not do, I so often do. The truth is, sometimes we do know what's good, but we don't always do it. And sometimes we know what's evil, and sometimes we do do it. So it's not simply the equation, say, that Plato had, that knowledge is the only, I mean, if you carry that to the nth degree, I suppose you could think that if we all had PhDs, there'd be no crime. I don't think anybody believes that. In fact, there are some crimes you do need a PhD to commit, so we've got to be careful about a simple equation, a simple equation of moral intellectualism. But it is an ethical theory. We could look at the mores, we could look more socially, we could look at the culture that we live in, we could look at the country that we live in, and we all, as a matter of fact, carry both the burdens and the benefits of our society. In fact, the English word moral comes from the Latin mos mores, in the plural, mores, the morals or the, the, the customs or the customary ways that people have in a society. But even there, we would be very careful about making another strict equation by just saying the customs or the mores of a society are the exact equal of the morals of a society. Because you could come into some societies where, say, maybe polygamy was a true indigenous value, part of the economics or something. But that presents Christians with a problem. I mean, you cannot read the New Testament without coming to the conclusion that monogamous marriage is the clear teaching, monogamous indissoluble marriage is the clear teaching of the New Testament. Now when you have that, what do you do? Do you take God's word to the world, or do you bend the world to God's word? They used to have a custom among Eskimos, particularly with elderly women, women who were beyond childbearing years. If their husband died, it was considered quite customary for that woman to separate herself from society, kind of get on the ice floe and paddle south. It's kind of a quiet form of euthanasia. Now again, although it might be customary, although it might be part of the mores of that society, that fact by itself does not make it moral. None of us grew up in a vacuum. Therefore, we carry both the burdens and the benefits of our society. Our cultural experiences are the lens through which we view certain things. So it may be we have very sharp vision about some things. It may be we're half blind, deaf, dumb, and blind about some other things. But there's input, but not a strict equation. So first, it's not simply or only knowledge that makes for virtue. Aristotle did not agree with Plato, so he corrected that and said, yes, it is a virtue, but not the only virtue. Maybe in our American society, there's also a link sometimes between morality and legality. Morality and legality. We are, or we should be, a law-abiding nation. We live in a participatory democracy. That means we elect people who vote for laws, who shape and make legislation. And since we participate in it, we do tend to take it seriously. But you could have examples of some things that are absolutely quite legal, but not necessarily or only for that reason entirely moral. Again, there is a connection, there can be a connection, but there are some obvious examples. On January 22nd, 1973, 
when the Supreme Court, the highest court in the land, simply evacuated the 48 states that had anti-abortion statutes, that then became legal, but it did not for that reason become moral. Nonetheless, I think there's kind of a cultural piece of equipment that we have that if something's legal, we probably feel that it's probably okay. Whereas if it's illegal, we kind of have a hunch or a feeling or an instinct, well, maybe there's something the matter with it. Maybe it's off base, maybe it's out of bounds. And again, it is a component. We should not downplay the importance of legality, even when some examples are clearly not moral. Because we are a society of diverse points of view, diverse religions, we call it pluralism, which is true. But the law can also function and have an educative purpose. The law, even though we have different points of view, the law tends to say what we as a society stand for and what we won't stand for. So it does and it can contribute. There are many other human sciences that focus on ethics and moral behavior, human behavior. Uh, sociology does, anthropology does, psychology does, even economics. Maybe sociology we pay more attention to because it's, it's almost de rigueur now in our society to take polls. We take a lot of polls. And as long as we understand both the purpose and the limitations of that, we can see that polls are, if accurate recording samples are taken, what you have there are recordings of states of mind. 55% of Americans think X is okay, 43% think it's wrong. That doesn't determine the morality of something, that just determines the recorded states of mind. Much of this goes back, I suppose, to Dr. Kinsey in the late 50s and 60s. He had some surveys on human sexual exercise. How accurate those surveys were, I don't know. But sometimes we forget that Dr. Kinsey was an entomologist, which means he studied bugs. Bugs don't have morals. All you have is statistical frequency. And we want to be careful. And remember, from statistical premises, even accurate statistical premises, then and only then can you draw a statistical conclusion. You can never draw a moral conclusion from anything other than moral premises. So we don't want to make moral theology just a chapter in a sociology book just by taking recordings or sampling opinions. But again, unless somebody is uh, kind of dull, you cannot ignore what's going on because it will also tell us maybe where we have to teach, where we have to witness, where we have to follow through. So from one point of view, many sciences, many organized studies do focus on human behavior and human activity. And uh, some will have, as most professional organizations, they usually have some professional code of ethics, and that's a standard, all right? And possibly, if we only use human reason, it's what we call rational ethics or perhaps philosophical ethics. Now, the other word that's most important, in fact, what distinguishes it, is the word theology. Theology. And in the Catholic understanding, Moral theology is not really the same as rational ethics. It may look at the same activity. That means human behavior, human conduct. That means the material object, the matter that we're studying, the matter that we're thinking about, the matter that we're praying over. That activity, the material object, may be the same. But the formal object, the point of view from which we look at it, here, this word is very important, and extremely so, that the theology, after all, the theo in theology refers to God. So that moral theology, technically, is part of what we call sacred theology. That means it has the same privileged source of knowledge, namely divine revelation, and the same first principles, the articles of the faith, the Articles of the Creed, all of which come from divine revelation. And those sacred sources come first, and those sacred sources are three. One is sacred scripture, which I'll just put down as SS, sacred tradition, ST, and then the magisterium of the church itself. And I slow down on this for a reason, 
Because I think in the moral magisterium of John Paul II, which we are examining, the Holy Father himself not only teaches this, but the way he teaches exemplifies what he's talking about. Why so? If we were to go back to the Second Vatican Council, that four-year council that met between 1962 and 1965 in Rome, what the Pope calls the most important ecclesial event in the 20th century, in one particular document, Optatum Totius, it's called in Latin, but it's on the on priestly formation, Number 16 of that document it was the collective wisdom of the bishops at the council about how they wanted to see improvement made in the teaching of moral theology. And it was but a single sentence, which I quote, paying attention to the development of moral theology, namely, quote, the scientific exposition of moral theology should be nourished by scriptural teaching to show the nobility of the Christian vocation and the obligation to bring forth fruit in charity for the life of the world. The exposition of moral theology should be more thoroughly nourished by scriptural teaching, by scriptural teaching. Now this is very important. Just as we were saying that human behavior, human conduct can be looked at from many points of view. When we're talking about moral theology, which does focus on human conduct, human behavior, what we would call Christian ethics or Christian morals. The point of view from which we view this is the privileged point of divine revelation. Divine revelation. We look at sacred scripture, sacred tradition, and the churches. Why? Why do we call these sacred? We call these sacred basically because scripture is revealed by God, tradition is guided by the Holy Spirit, and the church received a charism from Jesus to teach in his name. When he said, he who hears you, hears me. And he commissioned his disciples, those apostles, to go and teach all doctrines to all people in his name, with his authority. So when we say, yes, to principles located in scripture, clarified by tradition, taught in any given age by the teaching church. We are saying yes to more than human wisdom there. I don't question or doubt that other sciences have their wisdom and their authority and their sources. But if we're gonna call moral theology part of sacred theology, then its sources, first of all, are sacred. And that's an important thing. That's when, when I started, I said, if you ask most people what moral theology is about, they think it's kind of these bans, bans against, on or against certain forms of activity. And is, for the longest time, they did, not, they did not associate it really with God's divine revelation. And the fathers of the council wanted that to change. I would also point out, because it's certainly not irrelevant, that Pope John Paul is one of the few bishops left alive and active who was a member, a participant, active participant in all those four sessions of the Vatican Council. Therefore, he was one of the bishops who voted for this renewal. I think, unfortunately, in the English-speaking world, that the renewal of moral theology that was called for by the Council Fathers did not happen. It did not happen. Shortly, the council ended in 1965, but in 1968, with the publication of the encyclical Humani Vitae, I think at least in the English-speaking world, there were paralyzing and almost poisonous debates that uh, prevented the development of moral theology as the council called for, both the one about artificial birth control, but also questions about divorce and remarriage. And they went around in circles, and some of that debate and dissent was not helpful. It did not nourish the Christian life, and it really stunted the growth and explanation or exposition, really, of moral theology that the Council called for. And I think to some extent that the Holy Father has decided, after a period of time, to take up the topic himself. I know it sounds like a vicious circle, but I think you will find that in all the major teaching documents 
of the present pope, particularly the moral documents, and we're focusing on the moral magisterium of John Paul II, I think you will find that he always begins by a reflection on Holy Scripture. Now again, that's not necessarily what some people call a proof text. What we're doing is we're looking for biblical foundations, biblical foundations. We're looking for principles located in Holy Scripture. So, in this important encyclical on moral theory, Veritatis Splendor, how does he begin? He begins by going to chapter 19 of St. Matthew's Gospel and starts that reflection with the rich young man coming to Jesus saying, what good must I do to have eternal life? And the whole first chapter, numbers 6 to 27, are a long meditation, an extended meditation on those 10 or 12 verses in Holy Scripture. Similarly, in Vita Consecrata back in 1995, on the apostolic letter on religious life, he starts with Matthew 17, a long meditation on the transfiguration paragraph. Later, in the Gospel of Life, Evangelium Vitae, the encyclical on the life issues, everything from abortion to euthanasia. Again, he starts with a long meditation on Genesis 4, which is the Cain and Abel paragraph. That's a long one. And I think it's obvious if you read along, and I always suggest that if you read an encyclical, particularly the ones of John Paul II, especially, especially the ones on moral topics, always read that encyclical with a copy of the New Testament right at hand. Because there are many citations there that I think sometimes we look at a citation and we just nod as if we know it or we heard it. Maybe we do, maybe we didn't, but it would not hurt to repeat it, to think about it, and to say it out. Because it becomes obvious to me, if you go back, say, to um, Evangelium Vitae, the Gospel of Life. Long meditation on Genesis 4. Now, you may well be familiar, as I know I was familiar, with the, with the story of Cain and Abel. Well, to tell you the truth, I've read that many times. I didn't get 10% out of what the Holy Father got out of that passage in that paragraph, because it really is the product and the fruit of personal meditation, long meditation. He did not sit down with a computer and a word search and just wrap in Cain and wrap out Abel and see what came out. That, that, that This is only when you take what the spiritual authors tell us, when you read a passage over and over, even a verse, insert yourself into it, have a little quiet, ask, how does this apply to me? Then take it out and put it into your personal life. From the point of view of methodology, and methodology is a fancy word, but all methodology means is the way or the method one uses to go about doing a subject. That the Holy Father himself, particularly in his moral magisterium, that he goes first of all to those sacred sources, those sacred sources, sacred scripture, sacred tradition, and the church's own magisterium. We look for principles, moral principles there first. If you want to read something that is, I believe, coherent about those sacred sources and how they're connected, there's still another document of the Second Vatican Council, Dei Verbum. Dei Verbum is the dogmatic constitution on revelation, numbers 7 to 10. If you recall, Vatican II had 16 documents, formal documents. Two of them are dogmatic constitutions, therefore the most important. One, Lumen Gentium, is on the dogmatic constitution on the church, but the other is Dei Verbum. Very short, very short, but very important, because it's about God's revelation. Dei Verbum is about revelation. And in paragraphs 7 to 10, it explains in contemporary language, in 20th century language, how these sacred sources are related and connected. How sacred scripture and sacred tradition are connected and that the church is the custodian and the arbiter of divine revelation. So much so that these three sacred sources are so connected that you really cannot have one without the other. You cannot have one without the other. And methodologically, that's an important point. That our moral teaching then is not like raindrops that just rolled off or fell off the roof. But where does our moral teaching come from? You know, monks in the Middle Ages who were sitting around some long weekend with nothing else to do, or 
celibates like myself who, who dream things up. No, no. We look first for principles located in Holy Scripture, which principles have been clarified by sacred tradition, which principles have been taught in any given age by the teaching church. Those sacred sources come first. Again, I do not deny that there are other sources and other wisdoms, but it's the sacred sources that come first. Why so? Because I give the assent of my soul. When I say I believe, when I say I believe these, I'm giving the assent of my soul to what's revealed by God, guided by the Holy Spirit, and taught in the name of Jesus. I would never give my assent of soul to some survey. It may be an accurate survey. It may be a perfectly accurate survey. But at best, what you have there is human wisdom. And maybe even the best of human wisdom. But I don't have to make an active faith in human wisdom. In human wisdom, your answer is as good as your reason. If you have a good reason, you have a good answer. If you have no reason, you have no answer. But where faith is concerned, and moral theology, we say, is part of theology, sometimes maybe we go too quickly, after all, the T-H-E-O, the theo in theology, of course, refers to God. That's the Greek word for it. So it's the study of God. In fact, Alexander of Hales during the Middle Ages had his little memnonic, if you will, that theology teaches God, is taught by God, and leads to God. It teaches God. It is taught by God, and if we live it, it leads to God. So always we go to the sacred sources first, the sources of sacred theology. It may be in our contemporary American scene, we have stopped using the word sacred. I think that's a mistake. It may not even have been intended by anyone, but there was, at least when I was a kid, often we referred to many things as sacred. We said holy matrimony or holy mass. We put sacred or holy in front of things that really were sacred or holy. Uh, we've stopped doing that. That would be unfortunate if we do it here, because if we forget this, we might forget that those sacred sources come first and that they're a very, very important part of our moral teaching and also the methodology. We're focusing on the moral magisterium of John Paul II. His teaching has been quite considerable now over these 19 years of his pontificate, both on the theoretical level of what's fundamental, but also on specifics as well, which we will look at as we proceed. But we don't proceed too quickly without trying to verify the importance of this starting point. And that's what the Holy Father does in Veritatis Splendor. The first five numbers are simply and strictly an introduction. What is the purpose of this encyclical? But the first formal chapter, which is number six, paragraph six to paragraph 27, it's all a reflection on Holy Scripture. And it is not a waste of time for us to reflect on some of that. Maybe our outlook is such that when we read Scripture or we listen to Scripture, maybe our focus is a bit more doctrinal. Uh, maybe that's the way we were trained. Maybe that's just the way we look at things. I think sometimes our antennae are not up, or at least they're not on, because we're not looking sometimes for moral teachings. But we must remember that Christian moral teaching has to be rooted in God's revelation and teaches about what is the truth about the good. So if we go back, as the Holy Father reminds us in Veritatis Splendor, he gives us a pretty adequate and quite full explanation of the central place of the commandments. If we go back to that question with the rich young man, teacher, tell me, what good must I do to have eternal life? And at least in St. Mark's version, Jesus says, well, why do you call me good? Only God is good. And then he asks him about the commandments, and he names some of them, starting with the fifth, Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, and then honor your mother and father. And this rich young man says, I have kept all of those since my youth, or since from my childhood. And the New Translation says, Jesus looked on him with love. He looked on him with love. He looked on him approvingly. This was a good young man. He was a good young man. He observed the commandments. And those commandments are really the heart and lung machine of Old Testament morality. 
And if we read, as the Pope explains, he moves on to the, the Great Commandment and even the New Commandment, but he points out that the Sermon on the Mount is really the compendium of New Testament moral teaching, and it's in that sermon, in St. Matthew's Gospel, that's chapters 5, 6, and 7. In there, in Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says that he came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. Not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. Some people, or at least maybe some emphases in religious education, would have you believe that law all has to do with the Old Testament and not what to do with the New Testament. And that maybe love has to do with the New Testament and not with the Old Testament. Both of these are really distortions. As the Catechism points out beautifully when it takes up the Ten Commandments, it calls them first the Ten Words. The Ten Words. Whose word? God's word. God's word is the first word and the foundational word on morality. And therefore, those commandments are repeated. In fact, numerically, they're spelled out more often in the New Testament than they are in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, you only have it in Deuteronomy 5 and uh, Exodus 20. Whereas in the New Testament, you have it in Mark 10, Mark 19, Luke 18, Romans 13. It's repeated, but it's not left there. And again, the Pope takes us through those sections of the Sermon on the Mount, which I think sometimes people feel, well, it's idealistic, it's beautiful. The most beautiful speech anyone ever heard in their life. Mohandas Gandhi, who was not Christian, thought that it was the highest piece of moral teaching he ever heard. But for many people, they think it's really Eh, a little bit out of reach and therefore perhaps a little bit out of touch. That it's like it belongs in a museum. It's, it's too beautiful to be true, by which they mean it's not practical, that it's impossible to live this. Well, of course, on your own, it is not possible. But with God, all things are possible. And even that sermon is possible, as the Holy Father points out in Veritatis Splendor, Numbers 15 to 18. We could also take as kind of a rule of thumb whether you are personally reading the scriptures or perhaps listening to them in a church or in a other formal context, you're going to find some differences in the method of moral teaching in Holy Scripture. I think you'll find some differences between what we see in the gospel and what's much more common in epistles. If you think about it, a gospel, what is one of the most familiar forms, pedagogy, if you will, in gospel teaching. One of the things that comes up time and time again is what we call parables. Parables. The New Testament, well the Gospels, at least the synoptics, that is Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Many, many, many parables in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Whereas we don't find a single parable in any of the epistles of St. Paul or anywhere else in the New Testament. Question, can a parable teach a moral principle? Can a parable teach a moral principle? And I think the answer is yes, although it teaches it in general. If, for instance, we were to consider the parable of the Good Samaritan. You know, the Samaritan, the account is given that someone was on his way from Jericho to Jerusalem, uh, fell among thieves in our terms, got mugged, and then some high-profile types passed him by, and then some uh, mid-level profile passed him by, and then finally some despised, in their mind, some despised Samaritan helped him. Now, we can take that parable and put it in modern terms. You can be walking from your house to the bank, mugged, fall down on the street. Twenty-two priests go walking by, but they're in a hurry to go to a meeting on involvement. They don't help you. And the parish council goes marching by, and they're building a consensus somewhere else in the neighborhood. They don't help you. But some hippie weirdo who's collecting bottles from trash bags, who's in cashes in all his bottles, as is on his way to protest something at a nuclear power plant, I'm sure, and he helps you when you need the help. Isn't that the teaching, the moral principle of that parable? Namely, neighbor is not geography. It's not your zip code. It's not necessarily physical proximity. That parable teaches the neighbor is the one who helps the person when they need the help, when they need the help. So in a sense, it's not specific. It's a general moral principle that I believe is always valid, and you can always take 
more modern circumstances to jazz it up as long as you make it clear instead of clouded. And maybe I clouded it more than clarified, but I think the principle is there. We see it in the prodigal son as well, as long as you don't focus on the wrong son or on the sons, because I don't think the prodigal son parable is really about either son. It's about the father. Remember, they had two sons, and one of them demands his share of the inheritance, and he goes off to a foreign country, goes through all his money, it says, through dissolute living and loose women, so says the scripture. And then he's in a pigsty somewhere, competing with potential pork chops for existence, and then he says, comes to his senses and says, look, I'm here starving to death. I could do quite well back at my father's home. So up he takes himself and he goes home and the father comes out and is so glad to meet him, really glad to meet him, welcomes him, has a party. The oldest son, who was always faithful, always loyal, starts, he's kind of standing on the edge of the property, pouting, pouting, carrying on, saying, you never threw a party for me. Therefore, what's really the teaching, the moral principle in that parable? Well, I don't think it's Junior who almost wasted his life. And I'm not sure it's the oldest son either who's showing you how stingy and how much he can pout. The moral principle is the father and the father's forgiveness. And Jesus uses that parable to teach us something about his father's forgiveness, which of course we see in Jesus' teaching on forgiveness, that even on the cross, even when he was suffering, he found it in himself to forgive those who were persecuting him. So again, the principle, the principle is there about forgiveness, a Christian virtue, a Christian principle that may not be natural to us. True Christian forgiveness is a very difficult virtue to live. Again, on your own, I don't think you could do it, but with God's help, this can be done, okay? But we have many parables in the gospel, many parables in the gospel that do teach moral principles. They do teach moral principles, but in a parabolic, in a, in a kind of general sense. And we don't find them in St. John's Gospel at all. But when you read the epistles of St. Paul, there's not a single parable, but there's a great deal of moral teaching. There really is a great deal of moral teaching in St. Paul. St. Paul's epistles are usually written to a community which St. Paul himself had founded or was associated in its foundation. And St. Paul moves on in his missionary effort to someplace else. Word comes to him that all is not well, that factions are at each other's throats, that something has gone wrong in that original Christian foundational community that he helped to formulate. And he will write a letter back to the Romans, to the Corinthians, to the Galatians, to the Ephesians. Usually it has a little doctrinal component that was some part of their argument. But toward the end of all his New Testament epistles, St. Paul starts laying down with apostolic authority certain precepts. Do this, don't do that. Do this, don't do that. Do your eating and drinking at home. Don't come to the Eucharist and carry on. Don't permit these factions. Some people were told to sit down in church and not open their mouths. They're as blunt and as hard-nosed, so as kind of indirect as a parable might be, these ethical precepts are so direct that most of them can be transported right from the time they were written to right here and now. In fact, there are layers to them as they go. They're almost always he concerns himself with family life, then a little bit wider on the community of the Christian community, which is seen as a Christian family, then even things to a civic nature and to being a Roman citizen. So he'll go all the way from things about children, obey your parents, husbands respect your wives, wives respect your husbands, all the way to things like obey the emperor and pay your taxes. And in ways that's amazing. After all, who was persecuting the first Christian communities? Who was persecuting those communities? The godless Roman Empire and the Roman army we're persecuting them, and yet even in persecution, St. Paul enjoined upon his followers that they should obey all legitimate authority, and you give to the emperor what is due to the emperor, and you give to God what is God's, but try not to, to make sure you don't confuse them. So again, as we read, and we have the opportunity to read a great deal in Holy Scripture, 
as we read these things in the New Testament, we may not have our antenna up, but we should. And that's one of the things that I think the Pope is bringing to our attention. In fact, one of the accomplishments of the Second Vatican Council was not just the relationship between sacred scripture, sacred tradition, and the church's magisterium or the church itself, which is very important how these sacred sources are united, related, and interrelated, but also the emphasis on reading attentively Holy Scripture. Recall, if you will, one of the sentences with which we started, that the bishops of the council wanted to give attention to a proper development of moral theology, a proper development. How so? That its exposition should be more thoroughly nourished with scriptural teaching, with scriptural teaching. And that is, I believe, the method that you see in the Holy Father's work himself. Time and time again, in all these major encyclicals, how does he start? He doesn't start with a survey. He doesn't start with a Gallup poll or a Harris poll. Worthy events in their own right, but not reflective of sacred sources. He always starts with a sacred source. He always starts with divine revelation. Some passage which he will help us find and locate some moral principle on which he can build, and that becomes very important. And I think you'll find that this works its way through his entire moral magisterium. In shorthand, I put down as tremendous benchmarks the Catechism of the Catholic Church because it is a cohesive document and an important document. As you know, the Catechism is divided into four parts. The Catechism of the Catholic Church, published in French in 1992, is a four-part document. The first part is doctrine, if you will, what the Church believes. And the second part, part two, is what the Church celebrates, which is the sacraments. The third part is how the church lives. That's the moral part of the catechism, the moral part of the catechism of the Catholic Church. The fourth part would be how the church prays. But in that uh, third part, the moral section of the catechism, that is actually part three of the catechism is divided into two parts. One is what they call fundamental moral theology, which makes up basically about 40% of that section. And the second part is what we might call specific, which is basically the Ten Commandments. And I think you will find that the same approach has been followed in the Catechism as you will see in the encyclicals because it is part of the coherent moral magisterium of John Paul II. Namely, they start with sacred sources, sacred sources. They start with divine revelation. In fact, the section that starts off the Ten Commandments begins with the ten words, the ten words. After all, it is God's word. Remember, what was really the question behind the rich young man? His question was really to learn the truth about the good. Learn the truth about the good. Jesus describes himself as the way and the life and the truth. Nothing can be truer than the word of truth himself. So we always look for the creator's word. I think sometimes, particularly in morality, maybe in our social setting, people are sending a few dots. They're often saying, well, you know, morals, are these are rules that men and women made up a long time ago, and now we live in a new age. So if we live in a new age, isn't it time that uh, new men and new women made up new rules for the new age? Now, that harpoon is directed against something the church does not teach and actually has no bearing on what the church does teach. When the church talks about Christian behavior, Christian morality, Christian standards, we do not mean man-made standards, man-invented. We go back to God's revelation. If the maker of the thing had anything to say on it, then the maker's word is the fundamental word, right? You learn this the hard way sometimes at Christmas if you have to put together some gift or complicated toy or bench for a kid and you get the thing all done and there are two pieces sitting out and you can't figure out and then we say, well, maybe I'll go back and read the directions. Would have been better if we read the directions in the first place. So it is. If you made yourself I suppose you could make up the rules on how to take care of yourself. But if someone else made you, if in fact we are created,
then the Creator's word is the first word and the foundational word. Again, we offer no slight to any legitimate human science, whether that is economics or anthropology or sociology or any other form of ethical reasoning. I offer no slight, I intend no insult. All I'm saying is those are not normative standards. We look first for sacred sources. Does the maker of the thing have anything to say about the subject? Namely, what's revealed by God, what's guided by God's Holy Spirit, what is taught authoritatively in Jesus' name. That's the first word and the foundational word. And basically, that is the basis and the fuel and the nourishment of the subject of moral theology that the Second Vatican Council called for. Remember that sentence that the scientific exposition of moral theology should be more thoroughly nourished with sacred scripture or with the teaching of scripture. And this pope has done this. He's done it over and over. The method he uses in his big moral documents strictly follows that method. I think also there's something ecumenical in the Holy Father's approach too. Because sometimes Catholic moral teaching strikes people as something that we made up in the Middle Ages, or that the monks made up, or that the clergy made up, or that the celibates made up. And that's really not the case. And I think we will find, particularly in some pro-life circles, that people who are basically dedicated to the Apostles' Creed and the Ten Commandments will find it very helpful if we do a better job trying to locate our moral teaching in these sacred sources, particularly God's full revelation, which is both sacred scripture and sacred tradition. Those sacred sources are the first word and the important word and the definitive word, the normative word in the moral teaching of the Catholic Church. So to summarize, we are going to look at the moral magisterium of John Paul II. That's very important documents. But as we do it, we want to pay close attention to the method the way he actually does it. And the way he does it is what the Second Vatican Council called for, that whatever the moral question is, let's look for principles located in Holy Scripture, clarified by sacred tradition, taught in any given age by the teaching church. And as we look at these, uh, segment by segment, let's try and look with a Bible either at hand or nearby. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.